I'm very excited to be here with y'all. Very excited to be preaching this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Daniel McIntosh. I serve as the executive pastor here. If you're visiting, uh, it's glad to see you. Glad you're here. We have been in a series in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and it's been, we've called it We Stand uh, Corrected, you know, like we taped on the ED. And this idea is that in Christ Jesus, we do stand correct. If we've been justified in Christ, we stand correct before God. Our righteousness is Jesus's righteousness, and that's our correctness. However, we recognize after our justification, we're in this process of growing up in Jesus. And so we stand corrected sometimes. And Paul to the Corinthians is going to give some corrections. This is a growing church, young church, and they need corrected. And very similar, we need corrected from the Lord from time to time. Uh, so if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open them up there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can find it there on your worship guide. So question for us, how many of y'all have ever watched Undercover Boss? Yeah, I, do you, anybody like it? Like, I like that show. I think it's off now. I don't even know if it's still playing. But it was a pretty cool show. And here was the premise. You remember, you have the CEO or this owner. Some of you might be able to do this. Your company's big enough. And like they would uh, disguise themselves. And the whole premise was that this uh, boss would go and work. This owner would do all the different type of jobs that it takes to constitute that company. And they would do it undercover pretending that this person was coming in to do a documentary, right? And if you're at home and you're watching it, you know, and you've got like your popcorn and your Coke, uh, you see these employees and some of them, man, they're just killing it. They're doing such a good job. They're knocking it out of the park. And you're so excited, right? Because you know the owner is going to be right there beside them. They're going to see and know their good work. Right? And you're like, oh, I can't wait. The owner's seen what a good job Joe's been doing, driving the truck, saying hi to everyone, whatever the deal was. But there was this other side to it, right? An undercover boss is that every now and then you got the person who was a horrible employee and had somehow been getting by with it for all this time. And you're excited for the end when the CEO, because you're like, ha yep, they're going to get caught. Day's coming. The owner finally sees what's been going on, what's been happening in his company, right? And so at the end of Undercover Boss, what happens? Those of you who liked it, right? The, the boss is uncovered and the employees come to home office, right? And the boss is now setting, this owner sitting in there behind their desk and the employees come in and you have this time of like, aha, that's who you were. That's what all this weirdness was about. And we're excited because in that moment, the owner, the person who's in charge, the power broker, the one who can make change, makes change, right, for that employee. Maybe they're promoted. Maybe their idea, if they're doing a good job, is taken up by the company and they can move up or move forward or get promoted. And in the same time, those people that have been doing a pretty slack job, they get corrected, right? Um, in a similar but much, much grander way, Paul this morning in Corinthians chapter 3 is going to remind the Corinthians that God is the owner. God's the owner. He is the one in charge. He is the CEO. He owns it all, 
And as they are a church working unto God, they must remember who owns it, who's in charge, who the power broker is, who makes change. Paul's going to remind the Corinthians that God is the one in charge of spiritual growth. He's the one in charge of the workers. He's the one in charge of protecting the body. He is the owner. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and open up uh, to uh, chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul, for us, he comes back. If you, anybody in here, we have any of our lawyers here this morning? We have a few in our body. Like Paul is, would make a great lawyer. He's like sitting in front of your dad when you were little and your dad like could just go on and on about what you had done wrong. And then he comes back. And back to my first point, Paul is actually going to come back to his point that he started in chapter one, verse 10. Paul is going to come back and say, hey, by the way, these divisions, this is what I'm talking about. But instead of uh, what Paul has previously done where he's talked about the fallacy of what the Corinthians are doing. He's talked about the faulty understanding. He said, can Christ be divided? Can you follow this person or this person and be a unified body? Paul has talked a lot about the faulty wisdom of what they're doing. Now Paul is going to take a moment and he's going to talk about the why of what they're doing. Why, Corinthians, are you acting this way? Why are you divided? Why is there strife? Why is there jealousy? He's going to go after their heart. What's motivating these decisions? He's done a very good job of showing why those decisions are in error. Now he's going to talk about what's behind it, what's the engine behind it. And he says it pretty clearly, right? He says, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. This word, flesh. We've probably heard it if we've been around the scripture very long or, or been around the church. Uh, and if you look at this word, how many of you grew up reading the King James Version? There we go. Oh, man, it's getting less and less. Just a few of us can talk in Old English later. Uh, the King James Version translated this word carnal. Have ever heard you called you a carnal person? It's not carnival person, carnal person. Very different. Um, I mean, people have, grew up reading the NIV, right? The NIV translated it worldly. I mean, people have the NASB or the Holman Christian Standard. They use the word flesh, but then they say fleshy. Fleshy, right? If you want to be like a good Christian insultist, just be like, you carnal, worldly, fleshy person, and you'll get some good adjectives in there, right? Uh, and so what is Paul doing? What's this idea? Why does he say flesh? If you go to work tomorrow and call somebody fleshy, uh, it probably won't go well, even if they don't know what you're reading in the Bible, right? So the Greek root of this word is sarkos. Say sarkos. 
Sarcos. Sarcophagus. You guys know what a sarcophagus is? You can remember this Greek word by remembering a sarcophagus, which means flesh consuming, really gross. Look it up. You'll be grossed out too. Uh, but the Greek word is sarcos. And Paul's use of sarcos, he's going to give it an extra meaning for us. Uh, if you were a Greek speaker in the ancient world, if you said sarcos, you could just be talking about flesh, the soft substance of the living body, which covers the bones, right? Permeated with blood. Like, don't pinch your neighbor. But if you pinched your neighbor, you would pinch their sarcos, right? That's just your flesh. It's the stuff covering your bones. The body, it's a way to say body. But Paul takes this term and he gives it a little more oomph. He gives it a different spiritual dimension that it doesn't have in just its basic sense. And Paul ties it, denotes mere human nature, the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence. And that's the important aspect that Paul's adding to it. When he is talking to the Corinthians, he says, you guys are of the sarcos, you're of the flesh. You're being fleshy. He isn't saying you got a lot of meat on your bones. He's saying you're acting like a person who is just merely human. They have no connection to the Holy Spirit. You're acting like people who have not the things I've been saying you have in Christ. That's what it means to be a, a Christian who's acting fleshy, right? Oops, sorry. So here's a question. How many of you, if I said uh, from Galatians 5, could name me the fruit of the Spirit? Right now, off the top of your head. Somebody name them. I see them. Look a little louder. Come on. What? Okay, good. Good. Great. Now, how many of you can name the works of the flesh in Galatians 5? What's wrong? <laughs> Start making up bad words. Yeah, bad things. They're all bad things there in Galatians 5. Works. You know, it's funny. Uh, how many of you have the Uversion app on your phone? Uh, I went to it, and you know, if you click a verse and it highlights, if it's a popular verse, it'll have this beautiful meme that shows up, right? And it gives you this beautiful picture, and it puts your verse over top of it. If you do the fruit of the Spirit, you get these majestic mountains or this beautiful whatever, and here's the fruit of the Spirit. But when I clicked works of the flesh, there wasn't one single picture. <laughs> right? Probably for good reason. We probably don't need an image to go with the works of the flesh. But isn't it interesting that all of us, for good reason, memorize singular fruit of the Spirit. We don't remember the works of the flesh as well. Paul gives us these lists to be indicators for us. They're like little lights on our spiritual dashboard. How are we doing? You know, you have indicator lights on your car, tells you when to change your oil and engine's overheating, right? We see fruit of the Spirit as being the positive. It lets you know that you are walking out life under the Spirit. When you see the fruit of the Spirit coming together, being lived out in you, you know you're in the right spot under Christ. In the same way, Paul gave us a list for the works of the flesh. And actually in Galatians 5, he says there's even more. I didn't actually talk about all those um, because those are also indicators. And it might be that when we hit our teenage years, we should memorize both lists. 
it might actually benefit us. It benefits us to do that type of evaluation to see what our output is. And so Paul going to the Corinthians, what does he point out? What are their works of the flesh that he is concerned about? It's the same uh, conversation that he started in chapter 1. He says, there is jealousy and strife among you. You're behaving only in a human way, he says in verse 3. For one says, I follow Paul and I follow Paulus. Are you not being merely human? Are you not just acting like you have no connection to who Christ is? I think it's easy for us when we read this context of the Corinthians to say, wow, look at those guys. They had like these household banners. They're like the visions, like the house churches are kind of arguing about who the best person to follow is. Like, and you would look at our body and you would say, wow, we don't have those issues. Community groups, as far as as I know, someone tell me later. I don't think community groups are downing other community groups and saying, wow, we're a lot better than you guys. Look at uh, our great deal. We don't have that present in our body, and that's really good. Praise God for that. Some churches, that, that really does happen. Division comes out in the open, and people, I mean, they come to fisticuffs sometimes. Praise God we don't have that. But I do think for us in the South and as Christians in our context, I do think there's a danger. Here's what happens to us is a disagreement comes up in our heart, right? I have disagreed now with the leadership or that person or this decision. And my disagreement is a big deal. I'm convicted about my disagreement. But instead of doing the biblical healthy thing of going to the person and talking about it, airing out what it is, your convictions, where they have collided. Here's what we do in the polite South sometimes is we just hold it in. We think that's not proper. I shouldn't deal with that disagreement. And then the disagreement, here's what happens to it. It settles in us, and when we don't clear that out with the person, with Christ, it starts to turn into something uglier. It starts to turn into division and strife. This really does happen in our context. And then what happens, once it's turned into something divisive, you as that person, you suddenly feel torn. Because here you are among this body, but you're like, I'm so disagreeing, and and I don't feel like I can talk to anyone about it, and now I have this divisiveness pulling me apart. And what happens when this happens in individuals is they just ghost out. We call it ghosting. One day we see you, and then one day we don't. And we're like, what happened to that person? Lots of times what happened was disagreement turned into division and division turned into divisiveness. And this idea that you can secretly hold on to it and just ghost out and that's a better, more holy decision than actually coming and talking about the disagreement is wrong. It actually causes just as much harm. It hurts when people ghost. It hurts. We're a body. We're drawn together. We're knitted together in Christ. If you have a conviction and we need to work it out, maybe we don't agree, great. At least we know where each other is. But when you ghost out, man, I had a friend share, it's like ripping away. Someone was there and now they're not. So don't be fooled into thinking because we're not waving banners and community groups aren't at fisticuffs, that we don't have a potential problem to be divisive and have division. 
We can. Don't be fooled into thinking secret division is not real division. So Paul gives us these two um, very different views of what it looks like to be living as a Christian. This is how we're going to frame the rest of his discussion. We're going to talk about fleshy people. <laughs> right. It's okay. It's, it's, it's kind of an insult. It's true. Fleshy people. And in, the, in, the, in Paul's discussion, these are Christians not acting in the mind of Christ. These are Christians who are not following after God's spirit, who are not in submission to it. They are Christians. So get that clear. They are believers. But they do, they are not acting like it. They are not acting like they have the promises of God in them, the Spirit of God in them. And then there are spiritual people, Christians, who are acting in the mind of Christ. These are people who are living in submission to the Holy Spirit, to the Word. So these are the two kind of groups Paul is going to point out to. And recognize that when Paul talks about fleshy people, Paul never means that your flesh is bad, by the way. That was a Gnostic heresy. When Paul's talking about fleshy, he's talking about a spiritual reality. He's not talking about your actual body. Your body's made by God. It's a good thing. Flesh here is a spiritual dimension, not your actual body. Spiritual people here, not the new, new age Eastern view of spiritual. Like spiritual people is kind of a term that people use a lot. Spiritual people here is a Christian who's under the Holy Spirit, okay? This is Paul's understanding as he walks through it. So let's move a little forward. Paul's first illustration is going to be agriculture. Agriculture. Paul's going to use a farming illustration to teach us something about being spirit-led or uh, fleshy. So turn back to your scripture, uh, starting in verse 5. Read along with me. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So growing up, how many of you grew up farming or like gardening heavily. There we go. Thank you, Trask. Trask is another country boy like myself. A few of you raised your hand. I grew up in Flag Pond. Have you guys ever seen it? Going to Asheville, you zoomed right by it. You didn't even know it was there. I grew up in Flag Pond, and we used to grow tobacco. Tobacco used to be the cash crop that everyone where I lived grew. And tobacco, like any crop you grow, has lots of different pieces and parts to get it to the market. My favorite part as a young kid was the plow. You could sit on the planting plow. And so you kind of sit down, you had this box, had your little tobacco plants and someone sat beside you. And then you had this wheel thing that turned and you took your plants and you stuck it in this little divot. And this divot would turn and push the plant into the ground and then come up empty. You put your next plant in. As a kid, I mean, there was nothing more fun you could have done on the planet than get to ride the tractor and put your plant in the little thing. And as a kid, we weren't great at it, but they let us do it, right? Um, and this person would do it beside you. And that was one part of getting tobacco plants grown. There were tons of pieces of getting those plants to the place you could take them to market. Someone had to set a bed of them, and then you had to plant them. That was hard. And then you had to hoe the weeds out. Whew, baby. 
that you hadn't lived until you've hoed under the sun for about four hours doing nothing but chopping weeds and bringing in fertilizer. Like, it's just a great experience. You should all have it. I really mean that. Uh, and then after you hoed the tobacco, you had to pull off suckers. These were leaves that pulled the nutrients out of the plant. You had to get rid of them. And then you had to top the bloom. And then when it got mature, you would cut it. You'd put it on the stick, the stalk, leave it in the field. It would cure so long. Then you'd hang it in the barn. Then you'd take it to market after it cured. Now, how ridiculous would it have been for my family at the end of harvest season to have come back to me and said, wow, Daniel, you were so amazing. When you rode on that tractor and you put the plant in, I mean, it's, we just owe it all to you. That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It'd be silly. We get that in agriculture, right? Because we're so much out of control of what's happening to that plant. We're just workers. I'm just a worker doing the thing that I've been enabled to do, the fun thing that I loved. You wouldn't celebrate me. That would be really awkward and strange. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You guys are getting so distracted by people who are just equipped to do the labor I've called them to do that you're forgetting that I'm the one who's in charge I'm the owner. I'm the boss. I cause growth. Not the person who's living out their gifting. I'm the one in charge. I'm the owner. So the idea is fleshy people ignore God's ownership by celebrating the laborer and not the owner. Read it again. Fleshy people ignore God's ownership by celebrating the laborer and not the owner. Why is that? Because fleshy people like other flesh. Flesh likes flesh. We get distracted by the person, not the owner. And Christianity really is unique in this regard because if you think about it and you think about the work that people do um, in popular things, think about famous artists, right? When a famous artist does their art, we not only celebrate them, but man, we celebrate that art. Like we think about what they've produced, Van Gogh. We think about what he did and we celebrate Van Gogh's amazement and his ability. Think about a book writer. Uh, we think about that author and all the works they produced and we, get, we celebrate them. But in the kingdom, in Christianity, it does look different. When someone's working under the Spirit and they're being a spiritual person, we celebrate not them, we celebrate the Christ that they're working under. We look past them, and it takes us to Jesus, and that's what we celebrate. The idea is that spiritual people honor the laborer, but they worship the owner. Spiritual people, we do honor the laborer. If someone's good at their job, and they're good at discipling, or they're good at teaching, they're good at serving, they're good at being hospitable, they're good at being evangelists, like we honor them, we say, wow, God has gifted you with something. But that gifting should make us worship the owner. And that may be a test for you if you've found yourself maybe rooting for someone or you're just reading someone's books or you're listening to all their preaching or you're doing all the things they're doing. It, it may be a good heart check. Is my following of what this person doing making me make much of Jesus or am I starting to make a lot about them? It's a good heart check for us. It may not even be their fault. 
it may just be that you've switched to the person and not the Christ that they're talking about. So fleshy people, ignore God's ownership. Spiritual people, worship the owner. All right, let's move forward. Uh, the next, oops, sorry, not used to this thing. Next illustration is builders. Paul's going to talk about builders, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, oops, lost my place, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul talks about the builders. Paul now moves from this idea of agriculture, and he takes the Corinthians to think about uh, temples, to think about laying a foundation. Now, Paul's talking to both Jews and Gentiles, people that have all come in to this body of Christ. When he starts talking about laying a foundation and then adding onto it precious things, the minds of the readers are now going to the idea of a temple, the sacred space. When you think about sacred spaces, they were built out of the best stuff. Anyone reading uh, CBR right now? We just got through Solomon. And what did Solomon just complete? Where you at, Jonathan? The temple, right? And when you read how much gold and silver Solomon used to build the temple, I mean, it is astronomical how much money that would be valued at today. Like they're weighing gold by the buckets full and they're just pouring it out and they're using it on all of these things. The purpose of that was we. this was a place in which God would reside, that Israel would come to, and they would worship God. And so they wanted to use the very best, the very best they had to honor this place. And it makes sense. And even people who weren't Jews, people who were Greeks or whatever, when they built temples, they built them out of the very best stuff they had because they thought believe sincerely they were honoring the gods or the Jews were honoring Yahweh, the true God. And so this idea, Paul says, is there is a foundation that has been laid. I've laid it. I'm an apostle. I have this unique ministry that I'm a window to who Christ is. I have laid this foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And now you guys are coming behind me and you're building on top of it. But what are you building with? Do you perceive what you're building on top of as being something precious unto the Lord? Have you guys ever hung around a contractor? You can watch it on TV when they start to pull apart a building that needs a remodel and they start to peel away just the surface layers and they get in there and the work is bad, right? 
You guys ever been around a contractor? They will use choice words to describe the person that came before them to build on that foundation. Why? Because it's so frustrating. They can't do anything with what's underneath the layer. They can't continue to build onto it. What happens if it's really bad, right? They wipe it away. And so here's the idea for us is fleshy people disrespect God's ownership by adding shoddy work to the gospel. When we are working in the flesh, right? When we are doing works in the flesh, and we're adding on top of Jesus' foundation in us. If we're doing it in the flesh, Paul's saying it's shoddy work. The image Paul wants us to come to, or the reality really that Paul's talking about, is that all of us one day stand before Christ. There's a judgment for believers before Jesus. It's different than a judgment for those who do not know him. The judgment before Jesus, if you know him, is this time for Christ to reward you for things that you have done in him, things you've done in the Spirit. Paul says, when that day comes, have built something that will be precious, that will last. Build with something that is spiritual so that Christ can reward you, so that Christ can look and say, yes, this is eternal. This is something you have built working under me, for me, unto me. This is pointed to me. This is good stuff. Don't build with shoddy workmanship. And this does happen to us. You may look at this and think, wow, that's a great word. Do you preachers, teachers, leaders, you know, y'all, you guys should really pay attention to what you're saying and doing, and that's true. The word is to us, but the word is to all of us who spiritually are responsible for someone. If the Great Commission applies to you and you are to go out and teach everything Christ has commanded and you are spiritually responsible to pour into someone else, if you're spiritually responsible for what you're building on your own foundation, then this verse applies to you. Parents, Evangelical parents, this is us. Here we are in the room, all of us good evangelicals. We are very focused on making sure our kids get a foundation of gospel truth. Man, we go to great lengths to make sure they understand the gospel. We want them to get their justification sure. As a church, we do as well. We have the gospel project. It's what we teach to our elementary kids. Because we are very much about the person of Christ. But parents face this temptation, don't we? After that foundation is laid, it is really easy for us to start to parent, to be tempted to parent towards behavior modification and not transformational parenting that relies on Christ. What foundation are we building on our kids? We want them to know who Jesus is, is very dear to us. But then what does the next layer look like? Do we continue to build on top of them that transformation is about your heart? That their life choices need to honor Christ, whether they look successful in our eyes or not? Man, that's a temptation for us. If you are responsible for someone in discipleship, and they come to you, and the choices before them are tough, One choice will lead to suffering, but it will honor Christ. Or one choice will lead to success, but it may or may not be biblical. What are we tempted to do? 
What are we laying on top of the gospel foundation? Paul said, I knew nothing among you except the word of the cross. And here's the idea, that spiritual people add gospel truth on top of gospel foundations. We are compelled to do so because we know what we're adding on top of that needs to remain. It needs to point back to the life of Christ. It needs to make much of Jesus. It doesn't need to make much of the person. It doesn't need to be the thing that is in the world's eyes successful or amazing or easy. And sometimes our choices aren't always that drastic, but sometimes they are. What are we adding on top of the foundation? Spiritual people add gospel truth on top of gospel foundations. So Paul moves forward into his last illustration. It's this idea of the temple. So read with me in verses um, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul takes a break from looking internally at what the Corinthians are doing to now having them zoom out. He wants them to zoom out. And those U's, if you have an ESV, you'll see the subscript. The U's in verse 16 and 17, that's the plural U. How do we say plural U in the South? Y'all. We had been great Greek speakers. We had plural U's. Y'all. You got to say it with a good Southern bravado. Y'all. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple <laughs> and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul wants them to understand something that, hey, church, look, when you come together, I'm indwelling each of you, but you together make up my church. My church, God is saying, is precious to me. It's very precious to me. My spirit dwells in it. Why would it not be precious? And Paul gives a warning. He says, don't you know that if someone destroys uh, God's temple, God will destroy him? God is the defender of his church. It belongs to him. It is where his spirit resides. And it's a little bit strange for Paul to suddenly jump out of this instruction and correction to the Corinthians to suddenly jump to this warning. Paul's use of the word destroy there is really kind of a, an end time destruction. They will stand before the Lord and have to give account for being against his church. Paul is not accusing the Corinthians of being uh, destroyers of the body yet. Remember, he just said, you guys are building something on the foundation some of you are building with precious material. Some of you are laying gospel truth on top of Jesus Christ. Some of you are not. They're building. They're working. They're just working under the flesh. He's not accusing them of doing this, but he is giving them a warning. And the best way I've come to understand it is Paul is saying this. Listen, when you live as fleshy people, living as fleshy people can start to align you with those who are bound to the flesh. Living as fleshy people can start to align you with those bound to the flesh. It's this reminder. Don't continue to live this way. Don't you know that God is opposed to the flesh? He's opposed to the flesh in you. He loves you. you have, if you're his, you have a gospel foundation. But he is opposed to the works of your flesh. 
don't continue that direction. You start to look like people who are opposed to God's church. It's a warning to us. All right, so the good news. Paul is going to finally wrap up his first, uh, essentially, discussion with the Corinthians about their division. And he wraps it up starting in verse 18. So read along with me. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. It's a pretty interesting endpoint, interesting capstone to Paul's discussion about these divisions. Here's the first line that Paul wants them to recognize. Don't envy flesh success. English majors, please now laugh about that alliteration. Uh, God is the one in charge. He's the owner. Don't envy flesh success. Here's what the Corinthians are doing. They're looking around. You see what Paul says? He says, don't deceive yourself. If anyone thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul is looking at the Corinthians and recognizing one reason that they are probably pursuing this wisdom of the world, pursuing this division, pursuing saying, I follow Paul or I follow Cephas, is they are borrowing from what they see around them. They see this as being hugely successful in their culture. Remember early on, Spencer preached about this Greek city and how powerful it was and how it had these these leaders in it. They're borrowing from what they see. And And we get envious. Our temptation is to get envious of seeing worldly wisdom have success. And we think, gosh, if only I did it that way. Maybe it would turn out like this. Maybe if I took the temptation to not follow what God is saying in His Word, in His Word, and go after the success I'm seeing in business of these people around me, maybe I would be successful. Don't envy flesh success. What's Paul saying? He's saying God is the one in charge. He's the owner. Remember back to Undercover Boss, where the boss shows up and he sees and he knows. Essentially, the people get caught because the boss is there looking. In a much greater way, God is in charge. And if you see people getting success around you and you know they're cheating or you know they're not going the way of the Scripture, uh, recognize that they will stand before God. God will take care of it. He's got it. He's the owner. He's the one in charge. He's the boss. It's his. So that's the good news for us. Don't find yourself envying because God is the one in charge, not us. He's got it. And secondly, this is that you can rest. 
we can rest. Not only do we not have to be worried about the success we see happening around us from people who are being very worldly or following very different views, have a very different worldview, we can rest because God is the gracious giver. He's the owner. Look at that last verse, last two verses or three. For all things are yours. I mean, just read that. For all things are yours. All things. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. The Corinthians were part of this very uh, competitive culture. And they wanted to get ahead. They wanted to have the thing that the successful person had. They wanted it to be part of their resume. They wanted to put it on social media. They wanted to say, look, we've got this. We've, we've made it. We're successful. We're on top. We never do that, right? We're never tempted to go that way. And Paul says, don't you recognize that you have all of that already? In chapter 1, Paul talks about in Corinthians in the very beginning, all the things that they have in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is theirs. The things that Paul has from Jesus. He says, you have this from Jesus. You're not lesser or different. Why? Because you belong to the same Savior I do. We all belong to the same Christ. And Christ is giving us himself. There's not tears of like, well, you get a little bit more of Jesus if you're in this party or a little less of Jesus if you're here. We all get Jesus. And Jesus belongs to God. All things are yours. Wouldn't that be a much better way to live? And that is the good news. God is the gracious giver. If anything, the gospel teaches us that. Christ gave of himself. God is the owner. He is the boss. He's in charge. And we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Um, so this morning, as we think about uh, getting ready to take communion, um, communion for us really is a high point of our service, right? It's a high point of our worship. And because it forces us to remember who's in charge. It forces us to remember the owner. It forces us to remember from where our very hope and our life come from in a very tangible way. Uh, it may be this morning as we prepare to take communion that you see in yourself, like the Corinthians were struggling with a fleshy attitude and this is a fleshy attitude that you haven't repented from. You just recognize, wow, I really am walking not under the Spirit, but I'm walking in my flesh. Here's the really good news for you and I this morning is that the scandal of grace in the gospel is that your foundation is Christ Jesus. You have everything you need to turn from the flesh and to live in the Spirit with the mind of Christ. So this morning, if you are a believer, and this is something that God has brought up 
in your heart and you just want someone to pray with you to help you walk towards that repentance, just pray and search your heart. Bruce and Melissa, they're going to be back in the back and they will be available to pray with you. Recognizing you have a gospel foundation, but you just need someone to pray with you through repentance. As you recognize there could be a very fleshy attitude present in you that you've not repented of. Uh, This morning, if you have heard this and you're like, gosh, gospel foundation is something I am very unsure about in my life. I don't know if my foundation is Jesus Christ or you know it's not and you would like that to be true. The same people are available to pray with you. You can find maybe the person who brought you. You can find a community group leader. You can find a staff person. Someone here will talk to you about what it means to have a foundation that is Jesus Christ. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he was sitting with his disciples and he had before him wine and he poured it out in front of them. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that has been given for you for the remission of our sins. In the same way that night Christ had bread and he held it up before the disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Christ's body that is broken, carrying the wrath of our sins so that we could have life. Um, This morning there's going to be men around the room. They will be available to serve you communion. If you have a gospel foundation of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take uh, communion with us this morning. Uh, And they're around the room so you'll be able to find them. You're free to take.